Welcome to Free Thoughts from Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute. I'm Aaron Ross Powell, editor of Libertarianism.org and a research fellow here at the Cato Institute. And I'm Trevor Burris, a research fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Constitutional Studies. Today we're talking about the new book, Why Not Capitalism? And we're joined by the author, Professor Jason Brennan of Georgetown University. Welcome back to Free Thoughts. Hi. Thanks for having me again. So your book is a response to a fairly famous little book by the philosopher G.A. Cohen called Why Not Socialism? And in that book, Cohen makes a form of an argument that a lot of people tend to find pretty plausible and that's that capitalism may work and it may deliver the goods but it doesn't hold the moral high ground over socialism. Uh, the, the idea is that if we were all just better people, we'd be socialists but we're not so we aren't. Uh, and Cohen's contribution to this though is to tell it by way of an analogy to a camping expedition. Can hmm. you tell us what? Yeah, that's right. Uh, you, you hit it on, on the head. Uh, like, so you know, I want to respond to Cohen, but I think of him as, as really – even though he's a Marxist, he's on to something that almost everybody thinks. Like this idea, almost everyone believes it, that sort of utopia would be capitalist. If we were – I'm sorry, utopia would be socialist. If we were good people, we would be socialist. That when and people like, say like nice – great theory, wrong species yeah, or something like that. That's right. They're saying this is a good idea but – Yeah, but we're just not good enough for it. And so he says like you know, imagine you're, you're on a camping trip among friends. And uh, you're really genuine friends with one another. He's like, you might all bring different objects there that you personally own, but you wouldn't like sit there and assert your rights against one another. You wouldn't try to make a profit off of one another. Rather, you'd have kind of a common goal of everyone having a good time. You'd try to share the duties in an equitable way. You wouldn't free ride off of one another or take advantage of one another. You wouldn't try to hold power over the other person. And you would just kind of share everything in a sort of egalitarian way. And he says, and now if you imagine like that same camping trip with people acting the way they do in capitalism, it would be really awful. So he says, you know, imagine there's a person uh, who has special knowledge of how to crack nuts and he's willing to, to crack more nuts for people but only if he gets a bigger dinner than everybody else. Or imagine there's a person who's good at fishing and she's willing to do extra fishing but only if she gets out of doing latrine duty. He's like – and there are all these other kinds of behaviors like that that we see in capitalism. He says if the, if the camping trip had the behaviors that, are, that we see in the market – it would be a disgusting camping trip, a repugnant camping trip. You wouldn't want the camping trip to be like that. And it's clearly right. The way that he describes the socialist version is definitely a better camping trip than what he's calling the so-called capitalist version. So then he just says, OK, wouldn't it be better if the whole world were like that, like the, the socialist version of the camping trip? Like leave aside the question of whether it's possible. Wouldn't it just be desirable if, it, if it, we could do that to do it? Is that a – I guess accurate picture of socialism though? I mean does it make sense to make the move from so we've got a camping trip where all of us are sharing things to now socialism, which is Well, I'm sure the Soviet Union was just like a camping trip. Well, but yeah. not even not even like <laughs> real world socialism, but just socialism ideally still isn't everyone sharing everything. It's turning over ownership to a group of people who then tell us what to do with it or putting it in the hands of everyone voting, which is effectively the same thing because it's it's a, still an impersonal sort of thing that doesn't look much like the camping yeah. trip. Yeah, he thinks. I mean, he thinks it is. He thinks it's like in the camping trip, you're effectively relinquishing your control rights to the group, and you still have a say. And it's not that the, you know, and it, so it's not like relinquishing to the government. It's really anarchistic, but sort of a democratic anarchistic. Like we decide together how the burdens are going to be distributed and how the. Um, um, how the benefits are going to be distributed. And he says like, look, in the real world, if we do that kind of thing, people will take advantage of it. They're going to be nasty. They'll free ride on one another. There'll be moral hazard. Um, but 
at least ideally speaking, if we were good, if we were the way that like everyone thinks we ought to be, including the capitalists and the socialists, then those problems wouldn't exist. So he says effectively it would be socialism because everything would be owned in common. So Cohen seems to think that basically all the people who weren't fully buying into socialism or most of the predominant theorists, including Rawls, I know he uh, would are just making concessions to the fact that we're not as good as we wish we were. So in pure theory, we need to be doing socialism. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So he thinks uh, Cohen at the end of his life with this book and another book he published called Rescuing Justice and Equality, he says basically the reason that all other philosophers are so sanguine about markets, even people who are on the left like Rawls, is that they make he thinks they're dumbing down justice to accommodate bad facts about human nature. So as, as a matter of fact, in the real world, when we create institutions, we need to do that. But when we're talking about what justice requires, he says a just society is one in which everybody is just and is motivated by moral norms. So if you're in a world in which people are raping one another, there's a world of injustice. You're not talking about a just society anymore. If you're in a world in which people are stealing from each other, or abusing power, it's an unjust society. A just society is one in which everyone does the right thing. So he says uh, a lot of the arguments that people use, including Adam Smith, including Bernard Mandeville, including you know, my mentor David Schmitz, arguments that people use on behalf of private property and markets are based upon the fact that people are bad. So like take for example my, my mentor David Schmitz. He has this famous paper called The Institution of uh, Private of Property and he basically says the reason we have to have private property is because if we don't, we'll lead to something called the tragedy of the commons where people will overuse and exploit and destroy the resource and we won't leave enough for future generations. It's like that's a really good economic argument but it only applies in a world full of bad people. In a world of morally perfect people, you wouldn't have any use for that. Like that would not be a justification. It wouldn't matter anymore. Do you think uh, – so Cohen would say the way we look at justice should be as this pure thing yeah. and work to get – so we, we believe that the best world is the one where no one gets murdered yeah. and that's what the, the perfectly moral world with other yeah. things too yeah, so, and we shouldn't make concessions to people murder. We should yeah. be like, no, it's always one to murder. Stop that's right. murdering. And, and notice he's not, he's not talking about – you might say like what – like, let's define terms like heaven is a world in which everyone is morally perfect and also there is no limits to physics perhaps. Like you can change anything about physics if you want. It's just what will be the best possible universe from a moral point of view. But he's talking more about what we might call utopia. Like utopia is you keep the facts about human beings, their abilities the same. You don't give them superpowers. You don't change their brains or anything like that. However, you just imagine that everyone has perfect moral motivation. It's like you're not asking them to do things that they – like in that world, that world is in some sense easily attainable even though it will never happen because you're not asking people to do things they couldn't do. You're just asking them to do things they don't want to do. Like people could be nice. They're just not. They could be uh, less cruel. They're just not. They could do the right thing. They're just not willing to do so. Uh, and so you know, people might think he's very utopian in some sense but you know, calling him utopian concedes the moral high ground. Um, and that's the problem. If you say you're a utopian, he's like, yep, and I'm right. Like this is what morality requires. Yeah, you've and already admitted he's right. Yeah. Yeah. Is this included in this perfect morality? Then is there something like perfect knowledge? Is he moralized knowledge? Because none of that, even perfect morality, isn't going to get around. Say the socialist calculation problem. If because we've got say we've got the camping trip. The issue with the camping trip is we all have that really immediate knowledge of each other's needs, and so we can kind of share and coordinate. But one of the powerful arguments for markets is when you expand outwards, we don't have that sort of knowledge and so we need something like prices right. to coordinate goods. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, you know, there's there's two questions about knowledge here. One is could you be mistaken about morality in a non-culpable way? And Cohen just seems to assume without much argument not uh, that like the people in the in 
you know, his utopia will always do the right thing for the right reason and know what they're doing and they'll never sort of make a mistake about what ethics requires. However, um, and there might be philosophers who contest that. I don't contest that. I just let him have that. But actually on his – like you know, to his credit, he accepts the socialist calculation problem. He says elsewhere, not in this book, that what he calls bourgeois economics, what the rest of us just call economics, <laughs> is basically sound. And uh, he says like you can't have wide-scale central planning. There's no way that's going to work. Like wide-scale democratic planning um, of the entire economy is not going to work. So he says what he thinks – however, he's not convinced that market socialism won't work. He says a lot of people, especially the kind of people inclined to listen to this, think that market socialism isn't going to work. But he says people like Romer and um, – oh, what's the other guy at Toronto whose name I can never remember? Uh, like, but there are a number of like economists out there, like a small number of them who think that they've overcome the objections to market socialism. And Cohen doesn't say for sure that they're right. He just says we are not right now in a position to know for sure that market socialism won't work. So he what? says maybe what we really need is uh, – is market socialism instead of With some real capitalism. evolutionary for, like for attempt to figure it out. For people who aren't familiar with the term, what is what is market socialism? Yeah, mean? you know, I've I've read a lot of the <laughs> market socialist stuff and I'm not really sure either to be honest, but it's something like um, in order to get the calculation to get economic calculation, we need to have prices and so we're going to have private like kind of semi-private cooperatives that work together and produce things and then they're going to sell things on the market. Um, however, and so there will be market prices and so on. But then like the value, the profit that's created from that is all going to be shared equally among everybody. So it's kind of – it's supposed to be a halfway house between pure socialism and markets. It's supposed to get the benefits of both. I, I guess that that's about as good as I can, I've ever heard of a definition. Yeah. If, if, now, functionality is a little bit different than that too. Okay, so he gives this story of socialism on a camping trip and yeah. then you counter with a story of your own about – Friendly mice and ducks. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so I, I, I have a towards the end of the book, I have like an explanation, a philosophical explanation of why I think he's wrong. But I start with a, a parody of it, and I use uh, the children's TV show, The Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, uh, not the Mickey Mouse Club with Annette Funicello in the 1950s, but the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which is a CGI animated cartoon that's on TV right now. And what I realized was going on was like Cohen was basically imagining a sort of perfect. Like a morally perfect socialist society and then comparing that to real life capitalism. And I said what he needs to do is compare utopian socialism with utopian capitalism. But is there such a thing as utopian capitalism? What would it look like? And I was literally watching TV with my uh, my younger kid who was two at the time and I'm watching the, the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse show and I realize, wow, it's utopian anarchist capitalism. So it's a society in which uh, Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse, uh, Minnie Mouse and so on all live together in a village. Um, they have common goals and private goals. They do some things as a group. They do some things privately. Um, they have common property, things like amphitheaters and certain roads are collectively owned and maintained. Um, but they also have private property. Like literally Minnie Mouse is a capitalist. She has a, a boutique. It's called the boutique. It's a bow-making factory and a store. Clarabelle Cow uh, has a sundry store and a, a muffin factory. Willie the Giant and Donald Duck own farms. Um, uh, Professor Von Drake has nanotech machinery. Mickey Mouse has this like house that people come hang out on and so on. And they buy and, tra and trade and sell things um, and yet there's no principled objection that a socialist can have with, with what they do. So in the book, I describe the way that they live together and it's all accurate to what actually happens in the uh, – on the TV show, they buy, trade and sell things and they have – they live by principles of benevolence and social justice and so on. And everything that socialists want is there 
and yet they have private property anyways. And then to kind of parallel Cohen's book, what I do is I describe it going socialist. So what would happen if the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse were socialist instead of um, capitalist? And I make it realistic socialism. So I have it become very much like the Soviet Union or Cambodia and Donald Duck starts murdering people. Animal There's mass famine yeah. and so on. Um, and then what I end up kind of doing is taking a lot of Cohen's paragraphs and just changing the words around. And it, like you know, he'll be complaining about how he's like capitalism is a system of predation, and I'll say socialism. Every social system that we see is a system of predation, and you know what capitalists want to do is take you know ideas of benevolence and make them universal and so on. And it, uh, as a parody, it, it's it's interesting how easily you can just take his argument and just rearrange the words, and it becomes as good of an argument or even better of an argument for capitalism. But what I end up saying to readers is like, if you're a socialist, you're going to think what I'm doing here is kind of unfair. And you're right. There's a sense in which what I'm trying to show you is that Cohen's argument for the moral superiority of socialism is bogus. The, the argument that's presented in chapter two where I'm parodying him by using the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse is kind of equally bogus. But if you take our two bogus arguments and combine them and you reflect upon what went wrong, what you realize is actually no, the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse capitalism is, is actually utopia. That is the way people should live. I'm curious about the how the how socialism and capitalism emerge from these two stories as far as private property goes because I can imagine someone saying what you're describing isn't really capitalism mm -hmm. as far as the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse and the way that people interact and that the that private property is still compatible with the camping story in mm -hmm. the sense that we don't need for the camping story to still work. We don't need to say like all of this stuff like I bring a fishing pole and I catch fish and you bring stuff to start a fire. We don't need to say that's all communally owned. Yeah. We could instead say like you own yours and I own mine but we're – we have a high propensity to share. If you come yeah. to me and say I need a fish that I'm perfectly willing to give you one but it still is my fish. And on the other side, this this clubhouse thing that – you know, yeah, they have private property but so long as they have sufficient sharing, then it looks indistinguishable from the camping trip because what we don't want is you – know, yeah, they may exchange dollars and cents for muffins when everything's fine. But if Donald Duck shows up to – is it Minnie Mouse who has the muffins? Uh, Claire Buckow, yeah. Claire, if she shows up and says, um, I really need a muffin. I'm hungry. She'd probably in this situation just give him a muffin, right? Yeah, that's right. Well, I think you're onto something, and I think, but I think what you're showing is like what is maybe going wrong with Cohen, which is that he frequently sort of equivocates, or I'm sorry, uh, not equivocates, but treats socialism as if it were just equal to sharing benevolence and community spirit, and a lot of other people do that too, and that's that's problematic. It's bad lexicography. It's bad. It's sort of an ideological way of defining things. I mean, socialism and capitalism are distinguished. In principle, in, in like their definitions, not by attitudes people have, but by control rights. In socialism, by definition, the means of production are collectively owned. In capitalism, by the, by definition, the means of production are individually owned. There's nothing owned. about beneficence or anything in those definitions. Yeah, that's right. If I so if, you know, imagine if I said like, oh well, you know, you're describing. If I said to Cohen, you're describing socialism, but people are nice together to each other. That's not socialism. In socialism, by definition, people murder each other, like we see in Soviet Russia. He'd go, that's that's not built into the definition of socialism. You're just like. You know, so similarly, I want to say the same thing about capitalism. It's like he wants to define capitalism in terms of selfishness and greed and so on, but it's that's not part of the definition. So what I say to Cohen is it's really an empirical question to what degree um, socialism causes good feelings or bad feelings, what degree causes good motivations or, or undermines them. Same thing with capitalism. It's an empirical question whether capitalism promotes good motivations or undermines them, whether it makes us more selfish or not. But in principle, you can take 
people who are perfectly benevolent and perfectly concerned with so, with social justice and other kinds of left wing concerns and have them live with private property and the means of production. So what, what the burden that I kind of take on to my, for myself here is to explain if people were so good and nice that they could make socialism work, what would be the kind of additional value that they would get out of being capitalist? What would be the point of it? Mm-hmm. And it, so what you seem to get if you kind of eliminate the definitional, he tries to define socialism as this kind of beneficence. I mean, really what his argument is, it's really nice when people are nice yeah. and I will define socialism as niceness yeah. and it's better than when people are mean and I will define capitalism when people are mean. Yeah, that's right. It's almost that simple, right? Yeah, I call it a, I have a – so basically in chapter three of the book, um, I go through what I think are the two fallacious arguments that he's making or the two kind of fallacies that his argument is based upon. And this, but By the end of chapter three, what I think I've done is undermine his case for socialism. But I haven't yet fully made my case for capitalism. And so he does what I call the Cohen fallacy. Uh, I want to make that a term that people <laughs> use. And the Cohen fallacy goes like this. You say socialism with morally perfect people is better than capitalism with real people. Therefore, socialism is better than capitalism. And it's like when you drop out that modifier with perfect, with less than perfect, it that doesn't work. So imagine if I said like uh, you know, as people might know if they've read my other stuff, I'm not the world's biggest fan of democracy. So imagine I said I wanted to have monarchy instead and I said, well, imagine a world ruled by an omnibenevolent, omniscient, all-wise philosopher king and then compare that to dysfunctional real-life democracies like France. And I said, therefore, monarchy is better than democracy. You say, hold, hold on. OK, I'll, I'll admit that sort of your utopian monarchy is better than real-life democracy but that leaves open the question of whether – monarchy with good people is better than democracy with good people and whether monarchy in the real world with the real kinds of people we have is better than democracy with real, in the real world. And that's that's really the problem. So Cohen is just – all he's saying is that socialism plus kindness is better than capitalism plus selfishness. And that's the comparing the ideal to the real. Yeah. And it's fine to say that the ideal is better than the real. I'm not I'm – not, I don't have a beef with that. Like some, some philosophers do think that's a problem. I, don't, I think he's right. I think he's right that idealized socialism is better than real life capitalism. I just think we don't learn very much about capitalism from that because the thing that's doing all the work is the stipulation of perfect benevolence. Mm-hmm. It's not the socialism. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other Cohen fallacy which you bring up yeah. uh, is the identifying regimes with values or motives which right. you kind of yeah, touched so, on. Yeah. So a lot of people want to say things like, well, yeah, it's not really capitalism if people are nice to one another and it's like – that is the most ideologically motive, like like loaded Biased, way you could yeah. possibly <laughs> argue. And to to their credit, I mean, Cohen's dead. He I don't get to hear his response. But uh, to philosophers' credit, I presented this at the APA and a bunch of other places. And some philosophers will start to say that, and they'll go, "No, you're right. Like we we can't build in nastiness into the very definition of capitalism. Um, you're really capitalism and socialism are distinguished by control rights, not by the motives that people have." Well, couldn't you say that? Couldn't someone make the argument that? Those very sorts of control rights, so private property and the exchanging of goods for something else as opposed to just giving them away or sharing them yeah. is – builds in bad moral motivation in the yeah. sense that like you wouldn't – it wouldn't even occur to you to do those kinds of exchanges if you had moral perfection. Yeah, that's right. So here here again, if even if that's correct, I don't think that's correct. I'm going to talk about that a second, but even if that were correct, it wouldn't matter for the argument because we're supposed to be doing – I'm giving Cohen – sorry. I'm giving Cohen all of his way of thinking about philosophy and the way he thinks we should think about justice when we're doing political philosophy is not to worry about people's moral flaws. So the fact that you respond that way – if capitalism did that to you and you responded that way to it, if you were made a worse person by buying and selling – Well, I'm not, no, I'm not saying you're made a worse person. I'm simply saying that what if it were the case that 
the very mechanisms of capitalism would only even occur to people who oh, yeah. weren't morally perfect because if, if it's true that like ideal socialism is everyone just sharing and that's what morally perfect people do, then morally perfect people simply wouldn't engage in market exchanges yeah. in the first place. Uh, you know, There's a question, would it occur to them and I don't really know how to answer that. It's hard to know like if you had people who were morally perfect, would that – what would they think of? Um, however, I think what I can do and what I try to do in chapter four is say here's why they would get additional value out of being capitalist even if they didn't have to. But that's not the same thing saying it would occur to them. And that so that's the uh, the coming back up with your the own your own utopia, yeah. which is chapter four, why capitalism is utopia. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, that's right. So I say once again, like by utopianism here, I mean imagine a world where people have the same abilities that we have, but their moral their moral motivations are perfect. They always do the right thing for the right reason. Um, so what institutions would that world have? Uh, um, so what I have to – in order to argue that it's capitalist, you have to prove two things. One is that they have some reason to prefer private property over pure, purely collective property and another is that they have some reason to prefer markets. And the kinds of arguments that I would, I'm going to use here are not the standard economic arguments you get from Adam Smith or like your standard economist because those are all based upon – you know the fact that people are bad and what like you know even Adam Smith is saying you're taking selfish behavior and channeling yeah. it into it's public benefit. It's not from the benevolence of the butcher or the baker. Yeah. yeah. So I can't use that. I can't use questions of moral hazard or anything like that. It has to be. So they're going to be kind of sentimental type arguments, but that doesn't mean that they're false. It's just all you have to do is show that you get additional value out of capitalism, and then capitalism wins. So some of the there's a number of them. I'll just go through a couple. One is, you know, people are not the Borg. We are, we're partly private. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing to complain oh, wait, about. But for people who don't know, who are the Borg? Uh, the Borg in Star Trek, there's this uh, group of aliens called the Borg, and they everyone has a hive mind and no individuality at all. Right. So there's in the real world, we're diverse. We have individuality. We don't all care about the same things. We want to do some things in private, not because we don't like other people, but just because that's part of what it is to be human. We have projects that we want to pursue. So I end up saying to my my uh, readers, like some enemy who are going to be left wing, it's like, look, you can understand why you'd want to write a paper by yourself, say an academic paper by yourself, rather than have it being written collectively by your entire department um, or the entire world. You can understand why that would be important to giving meaning to your life. Uh, you can understand why an artist would want to paint a picture by himself or herself rather than having it being painted by a collective. If you can understand that, then you can empathize with Willie the Giant who wants to farm a certain way by himself or Minnie who has just a certain way she wants to do bow manufacturing. And and so that, that's one reason to have private property. Another thing has to do with just being able to count on things being where they are and the way that you left them. You know, Imagine like – uh, everything were collectively owned. It's like you couldn't put a guitar down because someone else might use it, and then it won't be the same way that you left it. And like there might be reasons not to do that in the worlds of scarcity or so on. But in a world where we have enough, like why not just let people have their own stuff they have exclusive access to? Um, there's even things about sentimentality. Like it's I want to have this particular um, stuffed animal because it it had meaning in my life, given like some interaction I had with my kids, and so I want that to be mine. And there's all these kinds of arguments like that. They're not the kind. They're not things where I would say like um, they're meant to be knockdown arguments for why we have to have capitalism versus socialism in the real world. Because, um, but here we're talking about in a utopian system in which uh, there's not like a, the problems we see in the real world. So it's like whatever reasons they have for having collective property, they also have additional reasons for wanting things to be privatized. You know, they're project pursuers. They have long-term goals. They want to see these things through. They want a private sphere of autonomy they control for themselves. 
And in addition, what about having a market? Um, there's a number of arguments for having a market. I won't go through them all now. But one of them has to do with just the fact that they're benevolent. So Cohen concedes the calculation problem of socialism. He concedes that in order to have um, cooperation on a massive scale, you know, bigger than 120 people, we need to have markets. So by hypothesis, Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse and so on are motivated by benevolence. They don't want to just benefit themselves. They want to live in a world in which everyone has as much prosperity as possible in order to make it so that other people have the highest chance possible of realizing their conception of the good. So a way of thinking about this is uh, imagine I had a magic wand in which if I wave that magic wand, it makes everybody 30 times richer. Mickey Mouse, being morally perfect, would want to wave the wand. Now imagine instead of having a magic wand, I have a philosopher king who comes up with a plan for an economy and he says, if you're a doctor and you're a lawyer and you're a – well, maybe they wouldn't have lawyers in this world. But if you're a doctor <laughs> and uh, you're uh, – you know, you're a farmer and you're a mechanic and maybe gives them some options or something. Like you could be a mechanic or a, do or a doctor. It doesn't matter. But pick one of those. If you do these things, it will be like we all collectively wave the magic wand. Effectively, that's what Cohen wants. He would say socialism in its ideal conception is waving the magic wand. The problem though is the calculation problem says that there is no philosopher king who can come up with that plan. However, at the same time, economics tells us that the market is the philosopher king. The market does that job. So – if, uh, if Mickey Mouse were well-informed and Minnie Mouse and so on were well-informed about economics, if they got an economics textbook and read it, they would want to make use of the market in order to bring about greater benefits for other people. This makes me think there's a part in the book where you discuss research on the actual moral effects of markets yeah. because I can imagine someone responding to what you just said by saying, OK, sure, maybe markets are like waving the wand but at what cost? Yeah. If markets turn us – against each other, if they make us greedy and miserly and right. just awful people, it may not be worth it for the 30 yeah. times increase in yeah. So that's right. So here we have to think about levels of theorizing. So if we're doing what Cohen wants us to do, which is talk about the institutions for perfect people, we don't have to worry about that because in the same way, like if I said to Cohen, we don't want collective property, that will cause moral hazard. People will free ride on one another. He would say, no, no, no. That's what evil people do. Good people don't do that. And I, so similarly, I could say if he said to me, we don't have markets that will make people more selfish, I'll go, no, no. Uh, by hypothesis, we're talking about perfect people and perfect people don't respond to temptation in negative ways. And he'd have to say, oh, yeah, you're right. You're playing by my rules. I can't make that move. However, it is interesting to ask what effect markets have in the real world. And for some reason, Cohen complains continuously throughout the book about how markets corrupt us. He says it leads to a hypertrophy of greed and so on. But he never actually looks at the empirical research. It turns out there is empirical research on what markets do to us and the research not only invalidates his claim but shows it's backwards. Now, there's not an overwhelming amount of this research but it's by people like Herbert Gintis, Joseph Henrik, Paul Zak and others. I list a bunch of them in the book. And what they find is that the single greatest cultural predictor in the real world that you will be kind, sharing, um, benevolent towards strangers, trustworthy towards strangers and trusting of strangers – et cetera, it's tolerant and so on, is the extent to which you come from a market-oriented society. People from socialist societies, as a matter of fact, aren't very nice and people from uh, traditional and conservative and tribal societies are not very nice. Niceness correlates with markets. It's not undermined by it. Now, it's possible – there's not so much of this research that we can be as confident in this as we can be in, say, like the theory of evolution. But uh, given what research there is, it shows that he's mistaken. And I add a couple of things in there. I say like, you know, like let's test things like um, – how corrupt are societies? So you, I, I run a graph in that in the book. I say like uh, here's Transparency International's um, score of corruption for different countries, and then here's the Fraser Institute, which is a, a free market think tank in uh, Canada, 
Um, here's their ranking of countries by economic freedom and their economic freedom score and I put them on a graph and plot it and then run some t-tests and put the line up and there's actually a very strong correlation where uh, the more market-oriented you are, the less corrupt you are. You know, and so on and so forth. So I say it's like Cohen. Cohen basically his argument is very much armchair psychology. It's like markets are by definition based upon exchange for the purpose of profit. Therefore, markets make us more selfish. It seems like this is just the predominant view of markets based on a Hollywood movie and yeah. your average capitalist in any given movie is of this ilk. So maybe this is so ingrained in th in thinking that, that that it's not even thought to be argued for it's just obvious capitalism yeah. makes people worse people but evidently that's not true yeah you know philosophers do this all the time and i i'm i'm kind of a person who tries to work in the intersection of politics philosophy and economics and i think i'm more aware of this problem than many of my colleagues are it's like they they all recognize that you can't do social science from the armchair, that what causes what is not a philosophical question. It's a social scientific question. It might be that we don't know how to answer it but in principle, it's something you answer with data and regressions and statistics and experiments and things like that. And uh, despite knowing this in their heads, a lot of my colleagues fail to, to look into these questions. So they'll just make straightforward causal claims without looking at any of the evidence. And often there's a huge body of literature that shows that they're mistaken and they just don't pay any attention to it. And Cohen unfortunately does that too. Why might that be? I mean what is it about markets? Because if I I could say people don't armchair theorize about say cancer cures. You don't sit there and be like, you know, I orange juice, I'm Actually, pretty I think sure that they do. But it's but, probably but, you know, but, yeah, but, but we don't yes. generally if you posit something like that, you'd say, well I'm gonna go I'm gonna go check. But yeah. the markets causes people to behave immorally is for many people it feels so obvious that they don't even need to. Yeah, I think I think it's not just about markets. I think it's about politics in general. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I, I bet you probably agree with this. Actually, it's like uh, when it comes to say something in physics, like how many different types of quarks are there, and do they even exist? Your average person is going to say, "I'm completely willing to defer to the physicists on this." When it comes to things that, but people don't care about that. They have no concern for it. When it comes to politics, people either don't care and thus don't know anything and don't pay attention, or they care a lot and then they like have their theory that they've basically formed at age 15 and they do everything in their power to rationalize that against all evidence. So I think I think this is just an extension of the fact that people are irrational about politics and so uh, whatever they happen to think, they just make up arguments for it and they don't even – it's like they don't even realize that they're making this mistake. It is It is weird that I mean people don't – they'll have very strong opinions about politics without having you know, say taken courses. Yeah. Public policy or whatever, but like 18th century German literature, people don't tend to form strong opinions about unless that's what you study. But why? I guess the what is it about politics that makes us do this yeah. in a way that we don't for? Well, it seems or, it's very much wrapped up with our concept of ourself as a person. So there's an identity element there. Now I'm sure you know people do not fight about math. I mean, but they probably do. I mean, that's a general statement, but I bet math. Well, they politicize math and then fight about it. True, but I bet so, mathematicians in universities who are maybe known as being the non-Euclidean guy versus the the other Euclidean guy, they they if their identities are very much wrapped up in being the non-Euclidean guy, they probably get in some really heated discussions at mathematician uh, conferences. And so, as long as it's not wrapped up with your identity, which for most people math isn't, then it probably is easier to have a more calm discussion about would be my theory. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, another thing you bring up here which I think is an interesting point uh, about sort of the values that may be 
um, philosophers might have in their inability to understand why capitalism might be useful. You say it's not just that <clears> – <throat> this is a quote from the book. It's not just that many Donald and Willie want exclusive use rights over objects. They also want to be able to use, give away, sell and in some cases destroy these objects as part of the pursuit of their visions of the good life. It means something for many to be able to sell bows to others that others are willing to buy from her because they like the bows rather than as a favor to her. It means something to Clarabelle that she can choose to sell her muffins or instead give them to free for free to a sick friend and so on. Some philosophers themselves having never owned a business or a farm might have a hard time understanding these kinds of desires. Well, that was a point. I think there's an essay by Zizek where he makes that point about Rawls and he yeah. says if you look at Rawls, the things that Rawls thinks the actions and rights that reserve that deserve absolute protection, they happen to be all of the things that John Rawls really a, that, likes yeah, to that do. Some, yeah. That some professor at Harvard in this time period was doing a lot of. But right. if you weren't a professor at Harvard, then it falls into this other category. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, even the things like Rawls is like, well, it's you know, it's it's a basic right to own a car and a house. But you know, I Rawls have never owned a factory. I don't see why that should be a basic right. You know, um, that's right. Yeah, they, they, it's a failure to empathize with uh, with what business people are doing or what some of their motivations that they could have, and. You know the argument. The argument for capitalism, interestingly, under utopian conditions, is largely very aesthetic. It's artistic. It's an artistic endeavor, and we want people to be able to have factories for artistic reasons. We we throw out a lot of the economic reasons because those are based upon flaws in human nature. But these other things remain, and I just want them to empathize. I want them to see that running a factory can mean the same thing to Donald Duck, at, or sorry, I should say Minnie Mouse. Donald Duck doesn't have a factory. <laughs> it can mean the same thing to, to Minnie Mouse as it does for them to write a book. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so if they're not going to prohibit private book writing. They shouldn't be prohibiting private uh, factory owning unless they have some principled objection. And given the rules that Cohen has set out about how we're supposed to theorize about philosophy, he has no objections. At, at most, what he has is like he wants universal socialism because he has a socialism fetish. And the cool thing actually about this is the final argument that I end up giving in be, on behalf of capitalism is uh, to say, well, if you had to choose, which would you choose? Would you rather live in, in the Mickey Mouse clubhouse world, say with real people rather than Mickey Mouse um, or would you rather live in, in Cohen's socialist camping trip? When I ask people, what I usually get is like about 8 out of 100 want Cohen's camping trip and the other 92 want, um, uh, want to live in uh, uh, the Mickey Mouse clubhouse world. And I say it's actually a trick question because you don't have to choose. The, the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse villagers being really tolerant and nice are totally fine with the Smurfs coming in and having a little Smurf commune in the middle of the village as long as the Smurfs are OK and tolerant of Minnie Mouse having her factory. If you want to live in a commune, go for it. And so what's interesting about this is uh, Cohen's first really, really big book was a critique of libertarian philosopher Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State and Utopia. And at the end of Anarchy, State and Utopia, uh, Nozick says – what would utopia be? It would really not be just one thing. There's no reason to think that there's one form of life or one set of institutions which is best for all of us and all of us at our best. Um, so instead, what it would be is a framework, uh, sort of a libertarian framework that allows for different kinds of organization and economic organization, provided everyone who lives in these organizations, these different kinds of uh, economic regimes, is there voluntarily. Not they're not conscripts. That would be utopianism. That's what utopia really is. And what I think Cohen has done inadvertently is his life's work his, – his first major book was criticizing Nozick. And, but his life's work was a 
sustained methodological critique of how people do political philosophy. And what I think is that if we actually accept his critique and do philosophy the way that he thinks we should, which he fails to do himself, we do it the way that he's, he, we, he thinks we should, what we get is a vindication of Robert Nozick. <laughs> you know, so that's – I think that's ultimately uh, Cohen's legacy with a little help from me is to show that Robert Nozick was right about utopia. Utopia is libertarianism. I hate to drag us backwards but I, I'm just struck by that disparity of eight out of 100 people wanting – only eight out of 100 people wanting to go camping, which just seems – I mean I, I would have predicted something closer to you know, 40 percent of the people prefer camping because people like camping. I mean, what, <laughs> that just seems – do people give explanations for what they find so much less appealing about the notion of a really happy camping trip over a small village? Yeah. You know, they have different things that they say. I remember uh, this one philosopher uh, – um, who's a very left-wing philosopher was was discussing this with me, and uh, he said, "Man, I would hate to go camping with Jerry Cohen. Like he's like he, he, that guy must never have gone camping. And actually, he says like he hasn't gone camping. He's like he must never have gone camping. That's not what camping is like is, at all. Um, so that's part of it. Is like they like camping, but they don't actually camp that way. It's like when I camp with friends, that's not how we do things. Um, it's not just everyone shares everything all the time, and we all have the same duties. And it's like and there's not a problem there." Uh, so I, I, you know, actually, speaking of Nozick again, it's funny that I keep getting that number because Nozick had an essay. I, I, I forget what it was originally published, but it ended up being put in an anthology later, where he asked the question, "Who would choose socialism?" And he says the best way to know that is to look at Israel in the '70s because you have a tradition of like a culture in which socialism has long been thought of as a really good thing. Um, people can be socialist and live in a kibbutz um, and not have to suffer any real cost of living loss. In fact, the Kibbutzim at that time at least were very successful. So they're like the choice to live in the sort of mostly capitalist structure versus living in a socialist structure is, is really just a, a preference. It's not about money or anything else. And he says even in that society at most 9 percent, depending on how you count it, at most 9 percent of people are choosing socialism. So maybe it's just like some small set of people want to live a socialist lifestyle and why not let them? And the rest of us don't. The rest of us are more like Minnie Mouse and Donald Duck. And why not let us be like that? You know, the things that Cohen complains about about real life capitalism that's full of exploitation, that people are indifferent and callous, that's true. And that's also true even more of real life socialism. But it, none of those complaints apply to utopian capitalism. So he has no principled objection to it. Um, the other thing, the the fact that you bring in production functions kind of into the capitalist system, is that discussed in Cohen's camping example, uh, production functions? Uh, how did we ever get the stuff in the first place or is that an illegitimate bringing something into the equation that shouldn't be brought in? Yeah, you know, Cohen – Can Cohen, we just assume that we have a fishing rod? I mean could – is it illegitimate to say there are no fishing rods? Yeah. There, there are no uh, useful fire pits or anything? Yeah, you know, Cohen's not trying to say something like, well, what if I created ex nihilo a bunch of human beings and put them on a planet and they all were perfect, what would they do? He's like, it's hard to know exactly what they would do because you know, there's questions about where they would learn and, and so on. So but but he does want to say something like in his sort of utopian socialism, everybody voluntarily chooses to work really hard, or as hard as people should work. And everybody voluntarily chooses to take an equal reward, and people will have talents and they'll innovate. Um, the same way that anyone innovates. But rather than being like I innovate because I want to get greater status, they innovate because I want to help people. Rather than being I want to innovate because I'd like to have a Mercedes S-Class rather than a C-Class. It's like I, it's, I innovate because I want everyone to be, have a better plate of dinner. So for him, it's like they're, they, their motives for innovating are supposed to be benevolent motives rather than sort of selfish or self-aggrandizing motives. And that's something that's different in yours because many may be innovating in the boutique but 
she may be doing it to make herself feel better about herself. Well, you know, there's a number of things that like she might have as motives. One is she genuinely wants people to be better off. So she, if she understands economics, and I just say, well, why wouldn't they? Uh, then she'll say, when I innovate, then I make other people better off. You know, the market is a system of extended social cooperation, uh, and when you understand how the market works, you might want to participate in the market for civically virtuous reasons. So she has that. Um, she has a genuine desire to produce a product that other people admire for its own sake. I mean, you, you quoted me before. It's like, you know, if, if some, you know, like, a, what's what's the Dickens novel? Um, um, Great Expectations, where the guy thinks he's a good artist, but then it turns out that all the artwork is being bought by someone who thinks owes him a favor. How disappointing would that be as an artist? It's like you don't actually like the art. You just like me. I don't want you to just like me. I want you to like the art. Right? That's what I want. I want you to crave my art, not because it's me. Uh, and I think you know, people who produce things can want that too and it makes sense to you. I want you to buy my computer because you think it's a good computer, not because you're doing me a favor. So there's that motive too. But also you know, she has a, it's a sphere of self-expression. It's like she has a problem that she wants to solve and even Cohen accepts that. Like people have a desire to confront challenges and overcome them to sort of express themselves and build themselves and, and that will be present he thinks in a socialist society and many can have that too. So I don't have to posit any kind of form of greed that he would find objectionable to make it work. I don't have to posit any kind of status seeking that he would find objectionable. I mean that's really the trick here. It's like there might be people at home who think um, – uh, why use this as a test of what counts as a good society? Like that's not the right test. Maybe they're right. I think Cohen has good arguments for using this test. But maybe the, maybe the objection is right and this is a crummy test. The interesting thing though is even if we give this – use this as a test, it doesn't work for socialism. Like that's – it's like you can concede everything about morality you want to the socialists and it doesn't justify socialism. It justifies Mickey Mouse Clubhouse capitalism. So at the end of this, did you find yourself uh, – Believing in capitalism in a different way than maybe you you had before you thought about this. Yeah, yeah, I definitely did. Uh, I I think you know what I like to say is that Cohen is a Marxist and most people aren't Marxist. And I explain his argument. I say you, the reader, probably aren't a socialist. Even like my like the left wing readers in philosophy who read this aren't most of them aren't socialists. They're just you know kind of moderate Democrats. Uh, like. You're probably not a socialist but you probably believe what he believes, which is that the main arguments for capitalism are instrumental. It's that people are kind of selfish and are inclined to take advantage of one another and capitalism tends to make those – produce good results despite that and socialism tends to produce bad results because of that. Uh, and a lot of the, the reasons that I was for the market were largely instrumental like that. Um, I had some, you know, deontological reasons having to do with like rights and duties and so on, but even they were they're still kind of based upon the fact that people are sort of mean to each other. Um, and so when I was like thinking about this, I realized like, no, I, I can kind of get rid of all these sorts of pessimistic or sad arguments, arguments that are based upon flaws of human nature and still justify capitalism despite that. So yeah, it really did change my view. I mean I really – at this point, I really do think it's like well, how should we live? What's the right way to live? Mickey Mouse Clubhouse capitalism. Um, does that mean that we're going to live that way in the real world? No, not, we're not. People aren't good enough to do that. They could be. They're just not. Um, so when I when I, I want to argue about why should we be capitalism be capitalist in the real world full of bad people, you bring in new kinds of arguments. But I think the goal, the thing we should aim for, is is that. I'm curious what I mean. I realize the book is very new, but if there has been a response to it and what that looks like from people who were inclined to agree with Cohen. Yeah. So that, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, you know, I, I was kind of worried about that too because some of the arguments I make against Cohen, like the flaws that I think I uncover, you know, like the illicit comparison of and so on, it just seems like they're so obvious. How is it that no one noticed them, including people who don't like Cohen? How is it no one noticed this? You know, um, 
But I've, I've uh, presented this in a number of places, a number of universities. At the American Philosophical Association, there was a big meeting and there were like a, you know, 70 people in the room, including a lot of people who completely accept Cohen's critique of, of Rawls and so on. And this has been the normal reaction. Holy cow, you're right. Really? Yeah. Like, like left-wing professors go – have been like said to me like in person like or in front of other people, wow, you're right. Utopia is capitalist. You're right. Like, and you're right that his argument doesn't for socialism doesn't work, and that you're right that there'd be reasons to be capitalist in utopia. So that's been the nor that has been the most common response. It sounds like least. kind of a big deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it, it's one of those things where I, you know, it's not like a paper. Like I presented papers before, and people go, "Yeah, obviously that's true. Why would you even write about that?" But it's not like that. This is more of a wow. Now that you put it that way, it seems obviously true, but it wasn't obvious until you put it that way. So that's been the – I mean I'm sure you know, three months from now someone will write some sort of sustained critique of it and maybe someone will come up with like a real objection. But so far I haven't had a serious objection to it. In fact, the, this is actually the only real objection that I've had, which is some Marxists think that all employment, all employment relationships are inherently bad, that selling your labor to somebody, even if that person is, is morally perfect like Minnie Mouse, selling your labor to somebody – ends up alienating you from your own condition and that's a bad thing. I don't – in the book, I don't respond to that because I can basically just say if you're right about that, then fine. You can imagine it's a capitalist society of entirely made up of sole proprietors. There's no employment. Um, I'm not – it's not essential to capitalism that there be employment. Uh, that's really it. Um, I mean if I did too much of that stuff, if I got rid of too many of these kinds of things, it wouldn't be capitalist anymore. But that's, that's really the only serious objection and it's something that I can just wave away. It doesn't really matter. It seems like now we can uh, uh, stop apologizing maybe for capitalism yeah, and, yeah, and I, stop saying it's the best of bad alternatives and maybe it's actually the best yeah. one we have. Yeah, don't concede the moral high ground. That's the point. It's, it's everything that most – I mean the typical arguments for capitalism concede the moral high ground and I think there's a problem with that. There's people like Ayn Rand who try not to do that but she does it by, by coming up with a view of morality that a lot of people find repulsive. Whether she's right or wrong doesn't matter. Like a lot of people think that's a repulsive view of morality. So what if you could capture the moral high ground using common sense morality, common sense moral ideals, you know, like ideals about benevolence and kindness and so on? And uh, that's that's what I want to do. Is like we're just take the moral high ground back. And now what I like to say is, um, you know, the socialists are to my right. You know, I'm I am a ra I am the radical left wing. When you get really really left wing, like as left wing as you could possibly get, what you get is anarchist capitalism. Socialism is sort of a conservative view with a desire to like return to tribal times, and you know, so in the same way that like uh, your average socialist looks upon conservative Republicans with some degree of moral disdain, like you guys are kind of cavemen. I can kind of see that them that way now. Thank you for listening to Free Thoughts. If you have any questions or comments about today's show, you can find us on Twitter at Free Thoughts Pod. That's Free Thoughts P O D. Free Thoughts is a project of Libertarianism.org and the Cato Institute and is produced by Evan Banks. To learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.